house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. forbidden to love you make bad trouble for yourself you start that trouble you never even heard of matt damon henry thomas penelope cruz all the pretty horses hello and welcome to the this had oscar buzz podcast the only podcast that will remember to change the reel before dropping dead in the projection booth Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. We riding along just like those horses in the American West. Listen, you have once again tricked me into <laughs> watching a goddamn horse movie we have i am terrified of horses <laughs> are you terrified of horses i am very terrified of horses how did this we not come up in the secretariat episode yeah i oh my god i literally just said our sea biscuit episode our secretariat episode we did that come up that I'm, uh i'm pretty sure at some point i said i am terrified of horses but like i maybe this thought actually, you were kidding this movie all the pretty horses it's actually not much of a horse movie. There's like four horses in this movie. So clearly, if they got all of the pretty horses, they think that horses are ugly. What's funny is a big part of this movie's problem is the fact that it's it's sort of at war with itself over form and function, sort of. How it's, you know, it's a story that is bleak and kind of, you know, it's a very Cormac McCarthy story. And because of a lot of the production difficulties that we'll talk about in a second, this being a Miramax movie, the heavy hand of Harvey Weinstein, that whole thing, the aesthetics often are at war with that kind of Cormac McCarthy bleakness. Yeah. And it's funny that you you easily be able to peg the title as part of that problem because the title is all the pretty horses and it sounds like it's a very sort of swoony epic Romantic. but that title like. comes from mccarthy itself but like with in his hands it's ironic and yeah i think harvey weinstein sort of read that title and is just like i know exactly the kind of oscar movie i'm gonna pitch and that was not not just pitch but like edit the film down to and that was mm-hmm. as it turned out a big part of the problem. So by before, the virtue of the title alone. Yes. But before we get into the movie, do you want to talk to our listeners about our upcoming mailbag episode? 
Yeah, guys, keep sending us your questions. We will be recording our mailbag episode soon and delivering that to you guys in about a month's time from now. Um, if you email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail or tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, we, I've already loved hearing your questions that you have for us. We have some exciting things to talk about, but please keep sending those in to us. Uh, once again, that's hadoscarbuzz at gmail and uh, had underscore Oscar underscore buzz at on Twitter. Twitter. Yes, do that, please. We're very much looking forward to that. Also, yeah, and it mention... can be any like type of questions that you guys want to ask. It can be about this current Oscar year. It can be about previous episodes we've talked. Anything we didn't touch on, you want us to discuss? Totally. Yeah, or like you know previous Oscar years. Exactly. Oscar oh, fantastic. Yeah, we love we love you know going off off topic about this kind of thing. Speaking of which, actually, I should mention that this week we're recording, we now finally have our first glimpses of a lineup for the Toronto Film Festival. As you know, Chris and I get very excited about this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, what did you, any, what jumped out at you about the Toronto lineup really quickly before? I mean, like, aside from the fact that we got a billion trailers for all of these movies right beforehand. Which um, happened last year as well, I remember. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk uh, like in all this inside baseball, if you follow it as closely as Joe and I do of like they're they pushed really hard to get a lot of world premieres and they got some good ones. Um, I'm probably most excited for Lorene Scafaria's Hustlers and also Marielle Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Um, But then there's also some other like really exciting prospects as well. I think we're both very curious about the Craig Brewer Eddie Murphy movie called Dolomite is my name. Right. Which is a Netflix. Cause that was one of the ones we were like messaging back and forth. Like, could this be a thing? Could this be a thing? I think right now, I think if you're making Oscar predictions, Eddie Murphy should be on your radar just from Absolutely. things that I have heard from people. I have not seen this movie yet, but it really feels like both on the, uh, a lot of behind the scenes, people are very high on this movie. And also I have heard about at least one person who has seen the movie and says that Murphy is great and also that Wesley Snipes is great. So that's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. Um, I think the the one that it seems like is coming hard already for the like early buzz, especially Oscar talk, is uh, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Which is also Netflix. Uh, which is also a Netflix film. Um, I could not be more excited for the new Noah Baumbach that it's Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson and the last movie he made. And also, I think Greta Gerwig in a supporting role, but I don't believe she's a co-writer on this like she was with Frances Ha and Mistress America. Is she in a supporting role? I haven't heard that. I thought I had heard that. Maybe that was a thing that was rumored that didn't end up being the case. And I'm going to look that up right now. Um, the things that I've read have said that um, it's Laura Dern that is the supporting play. I have also, yes, heard that. Yeah, I was wrong about that. No no Greta Gerwig in the IMDb list that I'm looking at now. I swear to God she was part of some kind of cast list way long ago when I started making the spreadsheet that I have. Merritt Weaver, however, is in this movie. Alan Alda and Mickey Sumner, who Francis Ha fans will remember as Sophie in that movie. But I will say just because... The Bombac Gerwig team ups are my favorites of his. 
doesn't necessarily mean that when she's not around, I don't love it. I was a big fan of the Meyerowitz stories, as everybody knows. Myself as well. So, yeah, I know we are all not collectively in the most ScarJo positive frame of mind these days. However... She doesn't exactly help us with that. She does not. But I'm very, very, very excited for this. I also will say, in terms of Oscar narratives shaping up, which you can sort of feel, you can feel that, like... It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is definitely positioning itself. You can feel that Harriet, the Harriet Tubman biopic with Cynthia Erivo. Directed by Casey Lemons. Directed by Casey Lemons. That's the most exciting thing about that. Like uh, Some of her earlier films, most notably um, Kate Man's uh, Valentine and Eve's Bayou, suggest that like she could do something a little bit more introspective and interesting with a traditional biopic. But the trailer definitely looks like it is more in the traditional vein than anything stepping outside the of it. Trailer so I'm very looks, the trailer looks very traditional. I think there are certain script things that jump out of that trailer that give me pause, that there is some dialogue that feels clunky in a trailer. That doesn't necessarily mean that it will in the movie itself. But I think the concept of... I think, I think you could feel a palpable excitement after that trailer dropped of... Cynthia Revo playing Harriet Tubman as this like gun-toting badass, right? Like I think that there is a place in the culture that is psyched for that. So mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting to see where that one goes. Why are you back here? It ain't safe. I come to get you. Bring all of you to freedom. Do you know what would happen if you got caught? You got lucky, Harriet. I made a diss for all my own. So don't you tell me what I can't do. Thanks to be excited about it, Tiff. I'm very excited for the new Ira Sachs. Um, it's called Frankie with Isabelle Huppert and yep. Marissa Tomei. I'm excited for the Pablo Lorraine follow-up to Jackie. Has he done anything since Jackie? I don't believe so. Um, but that's called Emma. I think I'm the only person who's actively excited for Judy. Yeah, you're really holding up the you're holding a, up the fort on Hootie uh, on Hootie <laughs> on Hootie. I am also holding up the fo- the fort on Hootie and the Blowfish along with Judy. R- like Renee Zellweger starring in Cracked Rear View and the Judy movie. <laughs> I want to see Renee Zellweger star in Hootie, the Hootie and the Blowfish story. She's sure. like their manager <laughs> and like gets into fights with Darius Rucker. Oh about, my god, about, like, I would love it. I would absolutely she, love it. She just like they need a better follow up album. They need another "Hold My Hand." Uh, I demand this movie is what I will say. A twenty four, make it happen. So other movies from TIFF that I am excited about. I think my number one is might be Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson murder mystery movie. I'm so 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 excited for that one. I'm really curious about the Taika Waititi movie Jojo Rabbit, which is the best as I can describe it Hitler comedy that. There's there was a full trailer, right? That was released it's, this week. It's yes. like a teaser. It played I just saw the Tarantino last night as a perfect recording. place for that trailer to play. Yes. And yeah, it yeah. played like gangbusters to a sold out crowd. So I think that's gonna do well. I think it's gonna do well, and it definitely seems like they're positioning that one for awards, which is real, real interesting. Um others the Steven Soderbergh Panama Papers movie, The Laundromat, I am all in, for, and I was already all in for it even before this photo of Meryl Streep wearing in a blossom hat, hat of some sort. Yeah, 
<laughs> like that's the best way I can describe it is one of those like bucket hats that you like fold up in the front kind of that Blossom used to wear. I don't think it has a flower on it, but it might because the photo sort of crops it out somewhat. Mm-hmm. She looks very, I don't know, she looks touristy, I guess is supposed to be the vibe there. I don't know. But I'm super, super into whatever's going to happen with that. Um, the new Armando Iannucci movie, which is called The Life and Death of David Copperfield, The Death of David Copperfield, something like that. The Personal History of David Copperfield. That's what it is. Something like that. Dev Patel is in that movie and various very funny people as well. I don't know. I'm just so... I'm into it. I'm very It's excited. a really um, intense, <laughs> crowded lineup that they gave us in the and first week. At this point, there'll be more. But... The Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie that I don't think either one of us are very excited about, but will definitely be a thing. Yeah, it's going to be a thing. Yeah. I don't, all right. I don't, not it. And then there's always there's all of the good can holder holdover stuff that's very exciting that well, we're right. excited Well, right, your Iris Axe like, was one of those as well. Yeah, yeah the, the Lighthouse, um, yes. Parasite... Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yep, yep, yep. Very excited for all of those movies. Um, what's You've seen face? the Almodovar. So I've we seen won't the Almodovar. I don't think I can talk about it, but I have definitely, yes, I have seen Pain and Glory. That I'm is a movie I am excited for other people to see and to start talking about, is what I will say. So, yeah, it's all happening. Awards season is happening. It is still July, and yet we can say that with confidence. All right, so. All the Pretty Horses, 2000 movie directed by Billy Bob Thornton, written by Ted Talley, who was the screenwriter for The Silence of, of the Silence Lambs. Of the Lambs. Yes, exactly. Based on the novel All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, starring Matt Damon, Penelope Cruz in her, if not her first American movie, but her the movie that was supposed to really launch her uh, in America. She was this acclaimed, speaking of Pedro Almodovar, speaking of Pain and Glory, um, she was this acclaimed Spanish actress, Almodovar actress, who was going to cross over and take America by storm. Henry Thomas is also in this movie. Henry Thomas, of course, the little kid from E.T., all grown up. Lucas Black, who was in Billy Bob Thornton's Sling Blade. And Ruben Blades, I believe, is how we pronounce that name. The guy uh, who plays in this movie plays the uh head of the uh, penelope cruz's father the head of the ranch that yes these guys go also start bruce working dern shows up yeah bruce dern Sam shows Shepherd. up yes uh what's you his can't face? really Robert make Patrick, these movies without the one or the other and it gets both yeah that's true do you think bruce dern and sam Shepard just like draw from a deck of cards as to what movie they're going to be in. And then, like, for this one, they drew, and it was, like, the one, the card with, like, the rules of poker on it. And they were like, well, I guess it's both of us. Uh, yeah. It's it's like, get me another horse movie. They <laughs> scream at their agent as they throw Cormac McCarthy books at them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this movie was we released like on December 25th, Christmas Day, year 2000, which was part of the problem. Um, you don't want to see um, a horse, uh, like a tragic Western <laughs> with your whole entire family fam on Christmas Day? On Christmas Day? No, I don't. I really, really don't. All the Pretty Horses is actually an interesting movie to get to talk about on this podcast because we know kind of a lot about its production history because it's talked about quite a bit in the book Down in Dirty Pictures by Peter Biskind, which is one of my very, very favorite books. It is about the... American indie film scene in the 1990s, especially through the lens of Miramax and Sundance, 
both sort of happening, both kind of cresting around the same time. The production history of All the Pretty Horses, though, is very interesting because, of course, it wasn't initially a Miramax movie. It was a Columbia movie. It was this, first of all, this acclaimed novel by Cormac McCarthy to the point where, like, they mention, uh, Biskin mentions in this book quite a bit about, like, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were, like, flipped out for this book already, sort of like they would quote it to each other and, and, you know, it was sort of part of their whole kind of like, I know, (laughs) I know. I know. But I don't think, oh, our poor listeners, we just put the mental image of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon reciting Cormac McCarthy into their brain. I know. But you knew but you knew somewhere deep down that that was true. That that it, was always true. Yeah. It makes it kind of interesting, though, to the fact that, like, the initial choice to play the lead role in this was DiCaprio and not Matt Damon, which kind of takes me back to that era of that post-1997 era where, like, they were the two young guys in Hollywood and every role sort of had to filter down through them, which I think is interesting. So initially Columbia, Sony had the rights to this and they were going to produce it through Columbia Pictures and they wanted to initially give this to Mike Nichols to direct, which I don't know how what movie that turns out to be. I saw that too and I'm I'm just confused, even if aside from the version that did actually make it to the screen like if it's this gritty dark western i don't know why they thought uh, mike nichols for that i it feels like very much a mike nichols is the best director we have on hand right now and right. we want and this is the our best prospect and we wanted to sort of put those two together but yeah i don't think there's anything about either this story or mike nichols that would naturally call for the two of them to be put together and perhaps mike nichols thought that too because uh he passes this off to billy bob thornton that's actually like on the set of primary colors so the story goes that nichols just sort of like passes the script for all the pretty horses to billy bob thornton and is like you should direct this so which i think is funny in a way it was just like i never think of those two people as being in the same sphere. And then it's just like, oh, right. Like, he was in that movie. And so Billy Bob Thornton then gets attached to direct because Miramax, since Miramax holds his option from after Sling Blade, because, of course, they produce Sling Blade, he wins the Oscar for Mm -hmm. screenplay in 1996. He gets nominated for Best Actor. It's a whole thing. Sling Blade. So Miramax has the option for his next... Yeah, Miramax holds the option for his next three directorial efforts, I believe, after that. So, um, or at least that was the deal at the time. So they then get to jump on as a co-production, Miramax and Columbia now. But Columbia is still sort of like running the show. Billy Bob Thornton gets famously very indulgent. He has uh, he has final cut up to two hours, is what they say in the book. And anything after t- uh, over two hours, then the studio can jump in. So he delivers initially a two and a half hour cut. It eventually like expands to over three hours. It's just incredibly self-indulgent. The suits at Columbia really don't like it. It feels like, the more I read about the production of this, it feels like what Billy Bob Thornton wanted to make was more along the lines of like a Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada kind of yeah. movie. Very contemplative, very sort of like not like not aggressively non-commercial, but like very much not commercial. Like this is not the big holiday season Oscar play 
moneymaker that Columbia seemingly really wanted. To the point, and there's a lot of quotes from But Matt Damon it makes being you like, wonder what the miscommunication was if they had two completely different expectations. Yes. Because, well, like, has it, a couple... was someone lying to somebody? Or is it, like, because those things are such oil and water? Yes. A little bit? To, Matt like, Damon has a couple movie... quotes in the book where he's like, I don't know if they read the book and maybe just read the title. Because the title does kind of promise this sort of, you know, sweeping vistas and cinematography and whatever. They really pressed for um, Thornton to hire, like, John Seal or Roger Deakins or Tak Fujimoto to be the DP, and he wanted to work with all of his crew, essentially, from Sling Blade. And so that was kind of a clash at the time. Apparently, Billy Bob and Amy Pascal really clashed where he was like disrespectful to her in meetings and would like color in a coloring book while she was trying to like talk and like this whole kind of like immature stuff but also just the studio did not seem to get at all what he was going for with this movie but weirdly like the people on the movie really did so at the same time an interesting little tidbit of this that i think you would enjoy is that even though the production is troubled, that Columbia is still high enough on Thornton as a director that they offer him the shipping news to direct. And he says, cool, I want to cast Laura Dern, who he was dating at the time. I want to cast Laura Dern as Wavy Prowse, which, again, (laughs) one of the accursed names that flows through this podcast is Wavy Prowse. So he wants to cast Laura Dern as Wavy Prowse, and the studio, like puts their foot down and are just like, absolutely not. We want Julia Roberts. We want Julianne Moore. We want Meg Ryan. We want somebody. They wanted a bigger name. And that it's funny to me that like anybody would be so adamantly against, against Laura, Dern. Laura Dern. So that is his deal breaker. So that's Thornton's deal breaker. So he's like, nope, I don't want to do this movie. And then Columbia is like, to Miramax, are just like, we don't want to do this movie either. Do you want it? And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll give it to Lassa Hallstrom. So they buy the shipping news. So like the origin of the shipping news is very much within... Attached to all the pretty horses. To all the pretty horses. All the pretty horses is initially supposed to be released at Christmas time in 1999, but because they can't settle on a cut of the movie, it blows past that deadline. At some point in this... Columbia... That's interesting. Was it in your 90... Like, was it at the point that it would have been in the 99 fall preview? It like, was it pushed back that far? Okay. It wasn't. It must have so changed. So they would have already it. seen the writing on the wall at that point that it wasn't going to be ready. Exactly. Although there are stories of, like, test screenings at malls and stuff like that, like, during... Oh, that's the perfect audience for this movie either version of it exactly so apparently the test screens were terrible as you might imagine and columbia ultimately throws up his hands and it's just like we don't know what to do with this anymore and they're like harvey you're good at this kind of stuff you take over and so harvey weinstein so miramax then gets uh north american distribution rights and harvey literally just like sharpens up his knives and is just like let's go to work and so he then proceeds to cut an hour and 20 minutes out of the movie which gets it down to just under two hours and it's this very acrimonious relationship between him and billy bob thornton and thornton thinks he's cutting the guts out of the movie that it looks like and this. there's apparently like some begrudging aspect to it because he didn't cut down sling blade correct right. that's the thing is that they had this like but, famously like, really good relationship from sling blade because they let 
you know, Billy Bob sort of do his own thing and it worked out so well. And I think Harvey is like, this is a Christmas release. We are going to get Oscar nominations for this. I know what I'm doing with this. I think it needs to be this this epic romance. We're going to sell it on the romance between Damon's character and Penelope Cruz. And if you watch the movie, she is a very relatively small part of this movie. There's a lot about um, sort of, you know, cowboys wandering around looking for their place in this world in, you know, 1949 America. And it's, you know, there's fewer and fewer places for them. And this world is not made for them and yada, 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 yada. So like, that's the movie. That's the movie that Thornton wanted to make. That was the book that McCarthy wrote. And ultimately Harvey's cuts into this movie, which like, I am not saying I would want a three and a half hour cut of all the pretty horses, but I think between the two of them, they end up with a movie that is neither fish nor fowl. And I think that is ultimately the big problem with the movie. And when we get to talking about why this movie did not get Oscar nominations, we'll talk about what happened when it got released on Christmas Day and how little money it made. But before I was actually shocked at how much it did make, it made $15 million, which is just. And I think I that's know. just like that's that's your ceiling when you are aggressively pushing a movie, falsely advertising it. Like that's falsely as well advertising as you can do. it, like hack jobbing it into this thing that it was never intended to be artistically. Yeah, and like, not audiences don't want either of those movies. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Anyway, read Down and Dirty Pictures. It's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it, especially if you are into the kinds of movies that we talk about on this at Oscar Buzz. There's a lot of stories about like weird Sundance acquisitions and Oscar campaigns gone wrong. It's it's a lot of also Harvey Weinstein being a big bullying, uh, horrible person Monster. to work for. So like, there's you know triggery aspects of that as well they don't ever get into his relationships with women because at this point that was covered up pretty decidedly and anyway go read the book it's fabulous but before we get into any more about the movie's oscar buzz chris do you want to tell us about what happens within this actual movie about pretty horses and pretty people yeah all right um it is not a short movie, but it is also not the three-and-a-half-hour movie that Billy Bob Thornton wanted to make. So that is your saving grace there. I have one minute on the clock if you are ready to go. I am. And go. All right, Matt Damon plays a cowboy named John Grady Cole. When his grandfather dies and like they no longer have his farm, he like goes and branches out. He convinces his friend, who's played by uh, Henry Thomas, to uh, go with him to Mexico to like start a ranch or just like be free people. I was really unclear on that. Anyway, they um, meet like uh, the lucas black's character on the way and he's like a kid who's like 30 seconds kind of a little rascal um but anyway they um get to mexico they start working for this uh rich man who um has a daughter played by penelope cruz her name's alejandra uh john cole falls in love with her but they can't be together um they take john cole and his friend um uh, uh lacy to jail they um end up getting like brutalized in jail and uh lucas black gets killed um they break out of jail and then uh well they don't break out of jail boy they don't the 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 aunt penelope cruz's aunt yeah she arranges them out of jail under the auspices of you can't 
be in love with her anymore. And then like Penelope Cruz is like really torn up about it for five minutes and then you never see her again. And then it really peters out to a slow little end, right? There's a lot of epilogue to this movie. Yeah. Like it's a good half hour epilogue. He tracks down the guy who threw them in prison. There's this revenge thing that happens. And then he takes the horses and then he gets arrested for having the horses. Yeah. And then he like, meets with a, ju- a judge that's like nice to him and i guess bruce he Dern, like... and he's like hey judge tell me i'm a good person and bruce dern is like you're a good person and then he goes and reconnects with henry thomas on his family's ranch and that's sort of the the petered out end of the movie this movie has real like plot problems like you can't really track if there's a plot what the plot is and i think like watching it it feels like it was one of those movies edited with a chainsaw Mm -hmm. and like that's probably the harvey thing of like taking out whole chunks of this movie so that like the flow of it is really off in a way that you really can't like entry level take the information that it is giving you that tells you what is going on Yes. It's also funny to me that you imagine that the intention from Harvey's end was to edit into this love story between Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz. And yet the strongest parts of the movie in terms of a plot is the stuff that has nothing to do with her, which is them and Lucas Black being thrown into prison. And are they going to kill Lucas Black because he has stolen a horse and then has killed a guy somewhere else? I I think Lucas Black is A, the best performance in the movie, and B, the most compelling part of the movie are the parts where they reconnect with him. And then once he gets killed, he gets executed sort of off screen. And I wonder if that has anything to do with maybe his character was the one that like stayed closest to intact of Very what possible. the original version of the movie is because like he doesn't have much to do with it, but like he's essential to like the emotional journey of the movie. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just, it feels like there's whole like character arcs that are like chopped up in this. It's, like there's insert shots of like landscapes that feel like they are just in there to be pretty that yes have no make no sense i don't Which know definitely also feels like that's you know yeah that's the movie that the studios definitely wanted to make what did you make of the chemistry and the love story between matt damon and penelope cruz's characters it's not really a love story Right. Like, there's not enough it's a, there It's a there. thwarted love story. Like, there is... Right. They don't really get to be together for very much of it. But also, no. it's not like a Romeo and Juliet thing where you're just like, oh, if only they could be together. Like, I don't know if I'm ever, like, really rooting all that hard for them to be together. And I don't think you're supposed to. Right. And, like, I think Penelope Cruz is good uh, as much as, like, you still don't know who this woman is. She's beguiling. Like... I think... Yeah, I think... It's after he returns to her is really when she gets to like speak basically. And she right. has this whole like uh, emotional crisis of like being with him or not being with him. And it's like, she's good in that. Okay. Section. But so in that part, but, like it's not enough to like make you root for them as a couple. It does have that kind of, you're definitely watching a movie thing where the obstacle is 
essentially because you need an obstacle where he comes back and he's he meets with the the aunt right uh, penelope cruz's aunt and she says who's like the matriarch of this family essentially or like pulls some strings right and so she says she's been the main obstacle for matt damon and penelope cruz getting together in the first place and she says i freed you from this prison the cost of that is i have told my niece that she is never to see you again and i am so confident that my niece will abide by this vow that i have made her uh, agree to that I'm going to give you her phone number and you can call her up and it's still but not going to But I know do you're not going to get together And I know with you're her. not going to. And yet, so then we go to Penelope Cruz and what? he does call her up and they get together and she says, because the, the, the condition was if you do get together with Matt Damon, I will tell your father that you are together and then, you know, all hell is going to break loose. And so when they get together, Penelope Cruz is like, I told my father myself so that my aunt won't have this thing to hold over my head. And yet even still, even though now there is, there is no consequence to be had for mm. um, them being together, Penelope it's Cruz not particularly like, dramatic. It's all like plays out sort of as like this chamber piece. Right. But she's like, like I still won't break my word. I made a promise and I will stick by it. And it's just like, this is such a, you know, I'm watching a, a piece of fiction here. And it's very frustrating. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, I wonder where in like the three and a half hours of the original version of this movie that fell time-wise because... It does feel like, why are they trying to shove this into what should be a climax of the movie, but then there's still like another half hour, half hour. of yeah. stuff left to go on? And it never really feels like, it feels like it is being placed in that position, but it is never actually positioned yeah. as a climax, if that makes sense. Like, it was never intended to be the crux of the movie. Yes, I agree with all of that. It. It just feels like the first 45 minutes feel like we're wasting a lot of time. We take a long time to get to Penelope Cruz. And like, or, or it would feel like we're wasting a lot of time if the point of the movie is this relationship between the two of them. If the yes. point of the movie is not the two of them, then we spend entirely too much time as if that was the point. And I think that is essentially the problem. It is, as I mentioned a movie that is pretty significantly at war with itself and it's never going to be able to go, you know, sort of either way. And I think you do have, I mean, I'm trying to think of like what got lost to history by this movie not becoming the thing that it was originally supposed to be. I think Matt Damon is pretty good in this movie. I think Penelope mm. Cruz is pretty good in this movie, but I don't think anything in this movie feels excellent in a way that I'm like, if only we could have gotten the Billy Bob Thornton cut of this movie, truly something special would have been, you know, we would have gotten something special. I don't know about that either. I don't think so, because, like, as I was watching this, like, I never had the sense of, oh, well, if I was watching what this was supposed to be, it would be a lot better. And I never really felt that. And maybe yeah. that's just what, like, the hatchet job that was done on the movie. But... I don't know. I never really got the sense that it would be all that great. And again, I still think the best case scenario for this movie is a three burials of Melchias Estrada, the homesman kind of like Tommy Lee Jones esque, yeah. 
you know, contemplative Western. And maybe that's what ultimately all actors want to be. It's an interesting thing when you think about Billy Bob Thornton as the director here, and that initially the Oscar buzz around this movie that existed was up to another, you know, actor turned director, and you know how much the Academy Mm -hmm. loves those. And I think we talked about this a little when we talked about Robert Redford and um, what was the title of the J-Lo movie that he did? Uh, An Unfinished Life. An Unfinished Life. And that, like, the Academy, the Academy's reputation for loving actors turned directors is even I if think, they are, don't love them as actors like robert redford for example like who only costner. has one nomination yeah i think it's it's interesting that both costner and redford who basically in the 80s and 90s kind of invented not invented but like were the poster boys for that sense of mm-hmm. actors turned directors as golden boys in hollywood and i don't think billy bob thornton at this point, he's a two-time acting nominee. He's a He was a nominee for Sling Blade and for A Simple Plan, and he was an Oscar winner in the screenplay category for Sling Blade. I still don't think Thornton, as an actor, was in the position to reap that kind of Academy adulation for transitioning to directing, which, first of all, he started as a director, so he wasn't transitioning. Mm-hmm. Second of all, he was never seen as an actor in the light that, like, Redford and Costner were in terms of, like, leading man, you right. know, carrying a, a he movie. He was a character actor. Right. He was a character actor. And I think, I'm trying to think of, like, other character actors who transitioned. I mean, maybe the closest I can think of is Tom McCarthy for, you yeah. know. Because he was like he was TV actor and whatever, and every once in a while he would show up in a movie. I think he's in. Is he in um, Duplicity, or am I just thinking of like? I don't remember Duplicity all that well. Oh, you should um, watch Duplicity again. It's so good. I know. I know. I so know. So underrated. It's but, also interesting that like you have Matt Damon and Billy Bob Thornton in a movie that was at least produced by Miramax. And they both are actors who won screenplay writer screenplay yeah. Oscars for Miramax movies. Yeah, that's so. Very it's true. like this is like a convergence of weird Oscar and then, anomalies. Isn't Penelope situation. Cruz's Oscar for a Weinstein Company movie, or am I making that up? Um, no, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. I'm pretty sure is Sony, Sony. because yeah. Sony Classics did. Uh, no, actually, that might have been a Weinstein Co. movie. Let me look that up. Yeah. Well, you look that up. I'm going to talk about my weird thing with Henry Thomas, which is that whenever I see him in a movie, I know that a bigger star is going to get all of the interesting things to do. Because he was in uh, Legends of the Fall, which is like all of the movie that movie's attention is on brad pitt in this movie in that movie like that is that is a movie that we can't really talk about on this podcast because it's an oscar nominee but it's such a perfect example of the kind of movie we're talking about and then henry thomas is in gangs of new york which is really a movie that we can't talk about on this podcast because it was a 10-time nominee but that's also one where it's just like he's the friend and dicaprio gets all the attention in that movie and so i think if you need to cast a second guy who doesn't get any of the focus of the story henry thomas seems to be your man but yes vicky christina barcelona was a weinstein co movie it was like a co-production with one of the million times they've tried to revive the corpse of mgm mgm yeah yeah yeah. that's interesting so yeah so it's interesting in this movie that it stars 
three Oscar winners who all won their Oscar connected to Harvey Weinstein. Again, he shows up again and again and again. I want to talk about um, something while I look up what else opened on Christmas Day in 2000. <laughs> what was that? I said talk about something while I look up the box office weekend for this movie. Um, okay, so what's interesting, too, if we're going to be talking about Har- the Harvey and the Miramax of it all, this is actually kind of a weirdly quiet Miramax year, and this is the time mm-hmm. where we think of Miramax as having like a million movies that they just like shuffle around depending on what works. The really only other things that they have this year is Bounce, which had like early buzz until people saw it, yeah, and then Shock a Lot, which was released around the same time. What's funny is in Down in Dirty Pictures, they mention that the Miramax Oscar year was all the pretty horses and bounce. And they include reindeer games in that, which I think is deeply funny because that was a February release and also was never an Oscar like thing. So I don't know whether that's just misreading the year or somebody at Miramax at some point was like, we thought, we thought reindeer games was going to be great. Yeah. I don't know. But like a lot of their movies, and especially their movies that made money that year, were Dimension titles. Like this is the year of the first scary movie. Right. What I love is that they released Dracula 2000 the same week as All the Pretty Horses, and Dracula 2000 made more money than All the Pretty Horses. Yikes. That's tough. (laughs) That's a rough one. So it's like it's interesting because like part of the – as obvious as like this is kind of a quintessential – Miramax Oscar year in like the worst case scenario with all the pretty horses of like the type of things that would go on behind the scenes with their movies Mm -hmm. and then the type of strong arming that Miramax did to get movies into serious Oscar consideration with Shakala. I think that's really interesting. Yes. I think that's right. So interestingly enough, so Christmas is a fine movie, by the way, it is not as terrible as people try to play it. It's not a like best picture movie, but like I can watch that movie. It's fine. It's you're right. It is fine. It's just it's hard to get away from the expectation of that movie. And it's hard to get away from the like feeling of it was fully strong armed into the Oscars by this horrible man. Yeah. So Christmas weekend 2000 is interesting to talk about because it is essentially a long weekend with Christmas on the Monday. Christmas Day is on the Monday, and a lot of the movies opened on the 22nd, which was the Friday. That's what Castaway did. That's the movie that opened number one. That is what Miss Congeniality did. That That movie also opened that weekend. So it's tough to sort of get the read on what actually, how... All the Pretty Horses opened in relativity to everything else because it doesn't open until actual Christmas Day. Like, so it waits until the Monday to open, which is so it only gets a like weird one, strategy. It's a very weird strategy, especially if you're looking to not get laughed out of the room with the box office receipts, which it did because it opens at 15th on that list. And then by the next, sorry, by the next weekend, which is. December 29th, which is the four-day New Year's Eve weekend, it is off the leaderboard. Like, it is (laughs) gone. It was such a complete and total disaster. And so it opens... So, all right. It opens technically at 15th, like I said, because it was only the one day of that weekend. Made just a little north of a million three. 
that weekend to its ultimate what did we say it got totally 15 15 which is like which probably is only accredited to being opening at christmas where it's like movies make money mm-hmm. daily versus like just on the weekends basically yeah yeah exactly oh sorry like by its second it weekend it, it's still at number 10 but then it plummets by new year's it is at 12 and then 20th in its fourth week so it is already sort of you know moving down 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 so ultimately it makes most of its money in that week between christmas and new year's which is what was the idea but it had no accompanying by that time once it opened it had no accompanying oscar buzz so there are 14 movies that ranked ahead of it uh uh december 25th 2000 the funniest one Yeah. I think all right, the funniest one in my opinion as I'm looking at this list is probably Vertical Limit cuz nobody remembers Vertical Limit. I know because didn't I have that on an IMDb game for you and you were really stumped by Vertical Limit? Yes, it must have been for Chris O'Donnell. The Chris O'Donnell mountain climbing movie, Vertical Limit. But also ahead of it in its second week in release, which what the fuck was this doing getting released in December? Is Dude Where's My Car? <laughs> what the actual fuck? so bizarre i think that's kind of funny they would release like stupid teen movies during like the holiday season as counter programming back then i guess i mean they still kind of do i guess they just get buried more it was also dracula 2000 that weekend which is really weird but anyway so yeah so 15 million dollars domestic off of what ultimately is they figured a hundred million dollars when all was said and done in terms of like advertising budget and stuff like that. Wow. So, but the the actual production budget was fifty million, which is already insane. That was the big crux of the argument between Sony and Billy Bob Thornton was like, this is a fifty million dollar movie. We're not going to let you make a fifty million dollar three and a half hour art house movie. Which... Okay, so I have a question about that marketing spend. In your memory of this movie being in theaters, do you have? any recollection of ever seeing a trailer oh i do uh, like yeah. tv spots or anything i do i remember I do there were these very swoony matt damon penelope cruz tv spots i definitely do recall that mm, see i don't and like i was seeing everything still at this time like this was the beginning of me seeing everything like i'm positive i even saw dracula 2000 <laughs> yeah but um and, like, never seeing a thing for this movie, and then it just, like, showed up in theaters. Yeah, no, I definitely remember there being a advanced hype for this movie, and it was just it was just a huge crash. Yeah. Which, alas. So, yeah, we talked a little bit about Billy Bob Thornton going to this movie, and why, because of the success of Sling Blade, and of course he ha- also had that nomination for A Simple Plan. The Miramax factor is not to be underestimated because as recently as just two years before, it had muscled its way to that Best Picture win for um, for Shakespeare in Love. And this was one of the, in the immediate aftermath of that, that's when like the DreamWorks Miramax war was essentially at its highest pitch, right? Yeah. Where, like DreamWorks comes back in 99 and wins with a be- for A Beautiful Mind. 99 ends up being... That year where Miramax... I forget what was Miramax's initial movie that they were going to line up. And then, like, the Cider House Rules ended up being their second choice. 
Um, let me look that up. Look up Miramax in '99 because something I definitely don't think Cider House Rules. Was We've their talked first about choice. it before. We have. We definitely not where have. I'm at today. But so, uh, so then the the quick sort of last minute marshalling of forces for for Cider House Rules at the end of '99 is to me just more proof that like Miramax was not going to let DreamWorks just walk away with it. So then 2000, which is one of those famous years where like all the big all the big guns kind of flopped, where this flopped, the other Matt Damon movie The Legend of Bagger Vance flopped, um Unbreakable, if anybody thought Unbreakable was going to be an Oscar follow-up for M Night Shyamalan, that did not end up being the case. Even Castaway, which was a huge hugely hyped movie, ends up being just a play an Oscar play only for Tom Hanks. So a lot of 2000 then becomes reaching to the earlier part of the year for Gladiator and then reaching to the very, very end of the year for Crouching Tiger and Traffic, which both both of those movies are fairly have like outsider appeal in a year where a lot of the mainstream Oscar bait really failed, which is something we talked about when we did our 2003 series. Yes. Did Was the 99 else? Miramax movie uh, Music of the Heart and Ew. it ended up just being Meryl? Maybe. I don't know if I can't I can't picture so that's them. really the only other fall thing. And there's Mansfield Park. Interesting. Maybe they were they were hoping for all the pretty horses to be their 99 play. Yeah. And then when it moved. Yeah, that could be that very well could be. But when we talked about um, it's like when we talked about. The Majestic. No, wait. What were we talking about in 2001 where... Oh, Gangs of New York, moving from 2001 to 2002. That's... Yes. Is what helped uh, In the Bedroom become the best picture play that it did. And that kind of stuff is interesting to me. Where, you know, all of a sudden a movie that was not going to be a studio's big push ends up being a studio's big push. So Well, yeah. and it's particularly fascinating always with Miramax because they move stuff around all the time and so they honestly, change their priorities all the time. Has any director benefited more from one movie than Lasse Hallstrom benefited from All the Pretty Horses? <laughs> Where he ends up with best picture, best picture nominees in two years and also gets to direct, well, gets to direct, but like got paid to direct The Shipping News all because of All the Pretty Horses. That's and we wild. have Nutcracker in the Four Realms to thank for it. Do you think if you walked into Lasse Hallstrom and Lena Olin's home in, I want to say, Stockholm, wherever the hell in Sweden that they're from, um, that there's a big framed poster of all the pretty horses, <laughs> just like on the on just in their in their great room or whatever, just above a couch? They have an or all like the that? pretty horses room where the Scissor Sisters, all of the horses, <laughs> plays constantly on a loop. That is, and it's a disco party. That is a dedication to a theme, and that's why we love Lasse Hallstrom and Lena Olin as a couple. Excellent. Okay, so... That, that was the fifth realm. They're all the <laughs> pretty horses room is the fifth realm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this also, I mentioned The Legend of Bagger Vance a second ago, and this movie, All the Pretty Horses, combined with Bagger Vance, which was also, I'm pretty sure, a... December release, if not December, then a late 2000s release, really Which represents one? all the pretty. Or, uh, Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh yes, right. Legend of Bagger Vance. I'm pretty sure was like October. Okay, all right, but definitely Oscar season 2000. Yes. So, what was October? 
Um, well, it was the 2000 Oscar season. Hold on, I've got it right uh, here. I will look up. November 3rd, so mm-hmm. there you go. basically right. But yeah, so after Goodwill Hunting, which again, talk about the Miramax connection. So Matt Damon holds a lot of... Uh, he owes a lot of his career to that Miramax push with Goodwill Hunting. They really, in terms of movies that that studio marketed perfectly, Goodwill Hunting is one of their best success stories. They really, really knew what they had there. They rode that sort of real life friendship train. They got a bunch of nominations for that movie. They didn't lie about what the movie was. They didn't lie about what the movie was. They got an Oscar for Robin Williams over arguably an even better narrative, which was Burt Reynolds's narrative. And do you ever go back and watch Boogie Nights and think about how many of those performances could have conceivably been a winner? Been a winner? Did and we not talk just about the ones this on nominated? mic or did we talk about this off mic about how much I love Alfred Molina in that movie? We were definitely talking about it. I don't remember whether we were on mic or on off mic, but go off. Yeah. He'd be my winner for that movie. That's, that's, that's delightful to me that, that, that you say that. Um, after Goodwill Hunting, 98 is Private Ryan, which is, you know, a glorified cameo, but a really, really well-deployed one that, like, puts him at the heart and center of a Best Picture nominee, nearly a Best Picture winner. I think Savior Private Ryan is a big, big win for Matt Damon in terms of career. And then he makes Rounders that same year, which made a bunch of money and was, like, a perfect demographic hit in terms of everybody of a certain age remembers enjoying matt damon in rounders i believe i think it's one of it's like perfect for that and then it's ripley the next year also dogma which i do have a soft spot for him in dogma that is Uh, can i just say the dvd that i got a hold of to watch all the pretty horses on the back and it says if you love all the pretty horses don't miss matt damon in miramax's Dogma." don't tell me jesus christ that is not joking so that is even more evidence of the fact that of the marketing that insanity. it was just about Matt Damon. Yeah. But also just like <laughs> that fans of one would be in any way interested in the other is wild to me. So I just really hope that on the back of some dogma DVD, it's like, if you love Matt Damon and dogma, see yeah. all the pretty horses. So Ripley is the same year, 1999. Again, all of this is Miramax. This is with the exception of saving private Ryan, goodwill hunting, Rounders, Dogma, Ripley, all Miramax, all the Pretty Horses, also Miramax. He's also weirdly in Finding Forrester, which is a Gus Van Sant thing. Is he just a cameo? I honestly can't remember Finding Forrester. He has Forrester to be just a cameo. I don't remember much of that movie other than Sean Connery saying, You're the man now, dog. That's what everybody remembers about that movie is You're the man now, dog. That, of course, not a Miramax movie, but a Columbia Pictures movie. Bolt the door. If you're coming in. That's you, isn't it? If I ask you not to say anything to anybody. And if I ask you to keep helping me with my writing. There'll be no questions about me or why there was only one book. The question concerning your most recent work isn't whether it's good. Punch the keys! It's whether it's too good. Yes! You're the man now, dog! And that movie. Yeah, that's sort of what I remember of it, but again, nothing in the way of specifics. And then, so that's 
two that is also 2000 i'm pretty sure as you're the man now dog it should have been called you're the man now dog i think more people would have watched it <laughs> right so buster rhymes in finding forrester it's a very Isn't he like Derek luke's friend all right let's run down the cast of finding forrester finding forrester directed by gus van sant starring sean connery which of course was this the movie it's that he did Derek after luke. he decided not, not yeah. to do the matrix i think that's probably a thing Ooh, maybe. All right. Sean yes, Connery. Buster Rhymes is in it, but Derek Luke is not, so only half points to me. Yeah, Derek Luke is not in that movie. You're maybe thinking of Antoine Fisher, which Antoine was Fisher. like the next year. Yes, but F. Murray deal. Abraham Love is him. in that movie. Anna Paquin, Michael Pitt, who would go on to be on Boardwalk Empire and other things. Um, Michael Nouri, who played Summer's father on The O.C. So truly. Truly a cavalcade of stars that Buster Rhymes then joined. So, yes. Finding Forrester in 2000, along with all the pretty horses and Bagger Vance. It's it's a disaster. Also, Titan AE, which he's the voice of, which also, I think, bombed. Massive bomb. Right. So, the story of 2000 Matt Damon is the story of, like, abject failure as a as a movie star especially where like any sense that like Matt Damon is going to open this movie on the back of his movie star charisma and that thousand watt smile is just pulverized. It's just absolutely shot. And I will say we talked a little bit about the majestic last week about how he almost played the lead role in that. And I honestly think that might've actually killed his career if he did that because he, decided not to do that movie so that he could make The Born Identity, which is in 2002, which I think is a big part of his... Yeah. Which I, I credited his comeback to that. But an underrated aspect of his comeback is that after all of Oceans. that failure in 2000, he takes the third lead... Fourth lead, actually, because Julia Roberts is, uh, is more important than him in that. He takes the fourth lead in Ocean's Eleven, which is... Yeah. It's an act. I don't know if I'm going to like graft humility onto Matt Damon for that, but like I could see other A-list actors being like, "I'm not taking the fourth lead in anything." I think it, you know, it lowers my status. Yada yada yada. And doing that and being a team player in that, and then being so good in that role is so important for his career hanging on the way it did. Some of his best work is in the Oceans movies. He's, He's so funny. He's great. He's the only good part of two. Well, of 12, rather. Um, although I am a weird defender of the Julia Roberts twist in that movie. I gotta, I gotta see 12 again to be able to piggyback on that, but... 12 is super annoying. 12 wants to be this, like, French art house movie in a way that I find deeply, deeply tiresome and antithetical to what was fun about Oceans 11. But... I but think then Matt 13 Damon, is exactly everything that was great about 11, and 13 is a blast, especially Ellen Barkin. Uh, that's one. That's the one I have to go back and watch again, because I kind of even lost my, lost my patience with that. But maybe I was not in a great space. So anyway, a lot of fun. Matt Damon was able to, I was able to rebound. I think, all right, here are the four pillars of Matt Damon's career comeback after bottoming out in 2000. A, the Ocean's franchise. B, the Bourne franchise, see that cameo he makes on Will and Grace, which honestly shows him to be a lot, a lot funnier than people realized. And see, I think weirdly making Jerry in 2002 is also kind of key in that it makes, it sets the precedent for him to be sort of like 
artsier than we thought, or that we gave him. And you would credit it to that, and not something like other Soderbergh movies, like The Informant or Behind the Candelabra. Well, those come so much later. I think Jerry sort of like sets the template for that, like plants the seeds for that. Okay. I think yes. I think by the time he's making The Informant and Behind the Candelabra, his career has fully recovered, right? Because he has already at that point made The Departed. He's already. I think by the time The Departed comes along, he's got all of the Bourne franchise behind him. He's got you know he's back, baby. And by the time The Departed comes, and I will be excited to see or interested, I should say, with what comes of the Ford versus Ferrari movie because. Like, we're a few years removed from The Martian, where he got huge again, and everybody wanted him again, and immediately he bombed out immediately after. (laughs) It's true. And bombed out in, like, this multi-level way where, like, Jason Bourne flopped, Downsizing flopped, The Great Wall was a success, just not here, right? That was the story with The Great Wall. Suburbicon flopped. And also, at the same time, he sort of runs afoul of... Woke Being Twitter, Me Too, all of this sort of stuff where he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. He keeps saying dumb things. Everybody's like canceling him all across the board. Like, can't cancel him fast enough. Everybody's got this, you know, big whiteboard full of Matt Damon with just like lines. He and Scarlett Johansson need yes. to give up public speaking <laughs> and they need to give in to public listening. <laughs> yeah. So we all hate, we all say we hate Matt Damon. I don't know. I'm not fully buying it. But yes, Ford versus Ferrari. Is, will be an interesting movie. I think it's one of it's James Mangold, so James Mangold knows how to do sort of meat and potatoes movie star movies, which I'm interested in. And it's him and Bale. That'll be an interesting little like duel for attention, right? And yeah, I don't. Think... I'm interested in Tracy Letts in that movie, but that's about my ceiling. Christian Bale's an interesting actor in that he his acting style is very showy all to all at all times. There's his you wouldn't you wouldn't think to call his acting style generous, and yet his co-stars always end up getting shine. You talk yeah. about the fighter. You talk about listen to Amy Adams. Like I tr- when Amy Adams says that she loves someone, I trust her. And she loves Christian Bale. Has she said that? Oh yeah, she loves him. Yeah, I give her I give her words a lot of credence too. Okay. I'm still I'm I'm the one who turned on him after that audio tape of him yelling at people on Terminator. Yeah, but the remix is a bop. <laughs> sure. Yes. I don't Please know. Audio drop that in. Yeah. I don't know. I still think there's a chance he's a bad person, but I will go I, I with I mean yes. Yeah. You know who's also in Ford versus Ferrari is our friend young Noah Jupe from uh, Suburbicon. Noah, Noah Jupe is good. I think Noah Jupe is a good actor. I I liked him in Suburbicon. He was maybe my favorite part of Suburbicon. Tracy Agreed. Letts. Tracy Letts is also in Ford versus Ferrari. That's the one. And Very playing, excited for Tracy Letts. Playing Henry Ford the second, and I'm I'm hoping against hope that that's a big enough role that we can finally give Tracy Letts the supporting actor nomination that he deserves. Agreed. He's had that coming for a while. How many movies would you feel like you could confidently say that Tracy Letts deserved a supporting actor nomination for? Uh, I mean, I think he deserves a best actor nomination for The Lovers. The you movie he really did do Deborah love Finger. The Lovers. You are a huge fan. Yeah, of I Lovers. like that movie a lot. Um, uh, definitely for Indignation. His scenes with Logan Lerman in Indignation are frigging 
rock concert. I think he's Oscar worthy in Indignation. I think he's Oscar worthy in Lady Bird. I think he's genuinely, at the very least, indie spirit worthy in Christine. And I think he's fucking phenomenal in The Post. Yeah. I love him in The Post. So anyway, we're going to keep banging this drum for Tracy Letts until somebody goddamn gives him a nomination. Okay, have we confirmed whether or not he is indeed in Little Women as his All My Sons bio said? It did say that, didn't it? He's not on IMDb at all. Maybe they're keeping that under wraps. Maybe. Or maybe it's just not updated. Maybe. They wouldn't have put it in his Playbill bio if it wasn't happening, right? Like that I mean, pretty much like, gets conf- it, that gets approved by. I his, don't know like, how that would get people. screwed up. Consi- like if he was maybe like dropped out of the movie at some point. I don't know how because yeah. all my sons happened after the movie was filmed. Right. That's what I that mean. Would seem like a big screw up if his bio in a playbill says that he's in a movie that has already filmed. And I feel like that would be approved by people closer to him than than pay attention to because IMDb is sort of famously ill tended when it comes to again IMDb had me thinking Greta Gerwig was in the new Noah Baumbach movie and she is apparently not so yeah all right what else do we want to talk about when we talk about why this movie bombed it's we talked about the the money. The reviews were obviously really bad. I don't know how much we even need to linger on that. The movie is sort of self-evidently bad. I think there's also, like, the, it doesn't bear more than a footnote because we've talked about it in episodes like The Missing. Audiences, especially at that time, did not want westerns. And, like, even yeah. if this was, like, a romantic western and it was sold on the romance, I think audiences were savvy enough to know that it was something that they didn't want in terms right. of genre. I agree. All right, so just as as an aside to our listeners, if you hear noise in the background, A... I'm... All the sirens you heard on last week's The Majestic episode. Right. Any Any kind of noise on my end is they're filming West Side Story, like, on the street uh, that my apartment overlooks. So... Exciting, but also sorry about the noise. So, listen carefully. You will hear West Side Story. Oh my God. You can hear Ansel Elgort somewhere mixed into the background for sure. Yes. He should be a guest. I should just lean out the window and just be like, Ansel, do you want to be a guest? Do you have any thoughts on Billy Bob Thornton? (laughs) Harvey Scissorhands. Do you remember when they called him Harvey Scissorhands? That's a good nickname. I will say, of all the things about Harvey Weinstein that it's unpleasant to linger on or whatever, whoever slapped that nickname on him is that's that's stuck. That's really, really both de- like derisive and descriptive at the same time. I like that. And I this love is that you jumped the epitome. Elgort and you weren't just like leaning out the window and like, hey, Steve, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> keep can it we get down on pretty horses from you. <laughs> What if I, like, in a very thick Brooklyn accent or whatever, just like, I'm trying to record a podcast up here. So one thing I think is very funny about this that I didn't mention in the production thing was one of the huge points of contention was that Harvey and Miramax took the original score off of the movie and replaced it with this very kind of sweeping, emotional, swelly kind of a score. And it was a huge bone of contention for Billy Bob Thornton. So, of course, the only Golden Globe nomination this movie gets is for the score, which is deeply funny. And very 
Very shady. Very shady. Oh, of course. Incredibly shady. It's also a National Board of Review winner for the screenplay by Ted Talley, which is... Okay, we got to talk about this this batch of winners for the National Board of Review, because this is the year that everybody trots out as, like, the antithesis of, like, their best picture nominee their best picture winner being a potential nominee and that's because they awarded it to quills yes but like you run down these winners and it's like it's kind of atypical for national board of review in a lot more other ways as well i don't know about necessarily atypical so national board of review gets this reputation for being very middle brow for being very safe for being they will award movies and actors who will be oscar nominees but not necessarily winners and but like very the less much, gracious interpretation is they want famous people to show up to their dinner they want famous people to show up to their dinner they they very famously spread the wealth they give every movie that's even getting buzz something and this year is no exception in that they have a top 10 and they also have a special recognition for excellence in filmmaking top 10 which has since mer- uh, uh, evolved into their indie they'll give a top 10 and then in top 10 indies which this year in 2000, outside of the regular top 10, they gave a a special recognition for excellence to American Psycho, Best in Show, Chuck and Buck, Girl Fight, the uh, Karen Kusama movie Girl Fight, Hamlet, the Ethan Hawke. If anybody saw the Ethan Hawke, Hamlet 2000, um, you know, young, (laughs) young, hot Hamlet. Nurse Betty was a nomination. We just talked about Nurse Betty. Requiem for a Dream, the Aronofsky movie shower which is a movie i've never heard of Uh, we call it by its biblical name shower 2000 (laughs) it's a chinese comedy drama uh, by zhang yang and snatch is a nominee that year the guy Ritchie movie snatch with brad pitt with all them tattoos and then a movie called two family house which i also have no familiarity with uh doesn't it have chris penn in it it has Kelly McDonald in it. It has Michael Rispoli, who oh, you maybe Kelly are thinking McDonald. of Love her. Uh, as Chris Penn. But anyway. Um, Michael Rispoli, here's where was... I think it's atypical. Run through their list of top ten movies, because most of these, or at least a good number of them, would be, like, if something of that, like, level or of that, like, publicity made these made their top ten this year, I think people would be shocked. So, yeah, the NBR Top 10 this year is a mixture of Oscar-buzzed movies like Traffic, You Can Count on Me, Billy Elliot, Gladiator, Wonder Boys, which was getting a lot of buzz, especially for Michael Douglas and Francis McDormand, Billy Elliot, which ends up being a Best Director nominee. But with all those, before, before Night Falls, which was the Julian Schnabel movie that got a nomination for... Javier Bardem. Bardem is actually their best actor pick this year. So along with all of that, they nominate Croupier, which was the Clive Owen British movie that basically launched Clive Owen's career. Um, Sunshine, the other Sunshine, not the Danny Boyle Sunshine. This is the East Van Zabo Sunshine that has... Rachel Weisz and Rachel Weisz, Ray Fiennes, Fiennes, Rosemary Harris, Jennifer Ely, uh, that I've never seen, but which was also a Golden Globe nominee for Best Picture. And then most interesting to me, besides Quills, is that it nominated Dancer in the Dark, which was weirdly part of the Oscar conversation quite a lot. Bjork got a Best Actress nomination at the Globes, and she was a Best Song nominee for I've Seen It All, which was, of course, the year she showed up in the swan dress. Do we want to yell at America for not understanding the swan dress? 
How, do you want a Stephen McKinley what Henderson? What do you want from Bjork? That is just like, why do you want her to just show up in a regular gown? You want Bjork to show up in a swan dress. This was the downside. I Listen, I love Joan Rivers. May she rest in peace. I thought she was phenomenal. But this was the downside of the tyranny of Joan Rivers and E's red carpet coverage, which is anybody who decided to do anything weird was like really, really smacked down. And, yeah, like, how dare. Right. And Bjork was ridiculed for the swan dress, which, if you look at it now, not only, egg. not only is it it's cheeky fabulous. and fun and perfectly Bjork, it's also beautiful. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> if that was a Project Runway unconventional whatever challenge, it would win. It would win. Because it's a beautiful looking dress, in addition to being a fucking dead swan wrapped around her body. <laughs> Like, I think we've all, I think this is one of those things where I'm actually arguing to nobody because I think everybody has come around on the swan dress. And if you haven't, you are woefully behind the culture and you need to catch up. Yeah. If you don't like the swan dress, this maybe is the wrong podcast for you. I think that is true. The other thing I want to mention about the NBR awards that year is that they gave Best Supporting Actress to Lupe, Lupe Antaveros for Hell Lupe yeah. Antaveros for Chuck and Buck, which is. One of the best precursor awards of my time following the Oscars, I feel like. Right? May she rest in peace. She's fabulous. She's so good in that movie that is not that was not in any way the kind of performance that was going to be part of the conversation that year. It really it deserved the boost that it got. And now we will even more so remember that like it's a she's a footnote, yes, but like to be a footnote is pretty like it will keep the the memory of that movie and that performance going for nerds like us at the very least. For listeners who are not familiar with Lupe Ontiveros, she plays the mother in Real Women Have Curves, yes. a movie you should absolutely see. It's fantastic. It introduced the world to uh fuck, I just almost said Ugly Betty and I don't want to call her Ugly Betty. America Ferreira is who yes. I am talking about. Yes. But um Lupe Ontiveros also played Yolanda in the Selena movie. She did. She absolutely did. Those are two enormous credits. Do you want to know what the first thing I ever saw her in or the first thing that I remember seeing her in? It wasn't Selena. It wasn't. It was as good as it gets. Oh, yes. Yes. Which she plays the like the nice. She's the the she's the house somewhere else. We're all stocked up here. Right. She's the recipient of sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. Although the lead up to that is some like classic Melvin Udall uh, racism yes in that which isn't is, it charming no it's not charming yeah um but she's she's very sweet in that one scene um <laughs> the thing she does says to set him off is very funny where she's just like open up his curtains let him see the the light of god's kingdom or something like that and he's just like <laughs> that's what gets him sort of set him off um anyway national board of review nominations that year were pretty interesting Great job that year guys. that is why i will always say all these like beleaguered awards-giving institutions, like the National Board of Review or the Golden Globes, which get you know picked on for having wackadoo nominees uh, from time to time, I will always stand up for them because along with those wackadoo nominees, they will get give you some really, really not you know movies that are not otherwise recognized places. Right. And I will always like that. All right. Anything we want to say before we do the IMDb game? 
Um, well, there's a few other footnote awards things that we love to talk about here. Um, Penelope Cruz won shared with also Blow and Captain Corelli's Mandolin. She won a yoga award for Worst Spanish Actress, which I find... Uh, like uh, they're getting whenever we mention the yoga awards it's always something that's like frustrating because again penelope cruz isn't bad in this movie i haven't seen captain corelli's mandolin but like we forget how like despised she was in the press like when she was like being introduced to american audiences yeah we haven't really, really it was really offensive at the time we haven't really talked about that in relation to this movie and we should because this was the year that Penelope Cruz was supposed to arrive in the United States. She was so very much hyped as the next big thing. She was, of course, really big in Pedro Almodovar movies coming over. She was a crossover actress, Spanish-speaking actress, who she had at this point only been in that movie Woman on Top, where she plays, I want to say, a chef. I have not seen that movie but I just remember the poster where she's holding like a pepper. Yeah, there's a and pepper, and like... she's sort of smiling right into the face of the camera, and she looks look at very this sexy beautiful. lady, right? Sexy lady with a pepper, and yeah. then all the pretty horses was supposed to be her big, you know, it was it was you know going to be a huge Oscar play, and she was going to maybe get nominated, and at the very least, she was going to be the sort of beguiling object of affection in this big Oscar movie. And then that didn't happen. And then Captain Corelli's Mandolin was also a huge Oscar bait disaster. And it took until Volver, because after all, the year after this was also Vanilla Sky and her relationship with Tom Cruise, neither one of which ended up serving her well at all. I don't think no, she's... And I think the Tom Cruise thing was a huge reason why people were so nasty to Penelope Cruise at the time. Well, in two, I don't think that was part of her narrative in 2000, though. I think in no. 2000, well, it was just like, yet? I don't think that was public knowledge yet. Mm. Because the divorce hadn't even really, I think he was still like in the process of getting divorced ah. at that point. I could be remembering it wrong, but I definitely, re- I just remember that like 2000, she was the actress who, the crossover actress who flopped. And then 2001, she was... Tom Cruise's new girlfriend and Vanilla Sky was bad. I don't, I don't think she's she's not good I like in Vanilla, Vanilla Sky, Sky, but a lot of things are not good in Vanilla Sky. So like, we can that's a movie. Vanilla Sky's not really for her though. Like, it doesn't really serve her in any way other than look how beautiful she is. No, but her character is very irritating in terms of the way she keeps sort of like cropping up and being so incredibly like ephemeral and i don't know she's in that movie Mastin anonymous with uh the the bob dylan movie Mastin anonymous from 2003 although everybody is so it's not like she stands out in that she's also in gothica as a very small role in gothica but like <laughs> that is not a movie that served anybody very well at all that was halle berry and robert downey jr where halle berry is a patient in a mental institution right yeah, Robert it's one of those, uh, what was the, it was a Dark Castle movie. They did like House on Haunted Hill yeah, and yeah, 13 yeah, yeah, yeah. Ghosts. And she's was like, always down Penelope Cruz is like movies. the other woman in the asylum and she's like already crazy. And yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> what else God. had she been in? It wasn't really, she was in Sahara, the, um, the, flop. What? 
It was a big old flop. Yeah, that was another flop. That was Matthew McConaughey. I just remember the poster of that where he's just like, look at my big muscle arms. And I'm a smiling man. Yeah, that was a big old flop. And then so it's not until Volver in 2006 where she sort of goes back to Almodovar, back to, you know, a Spanish language movie. It's, you know, back to her wheelhouse. And because now she's an actress who we in America know and that movie can play as a crossover, everybody goes and sees that or, you know, the people who go and see that movie see everything about Penelope Cruz that like people had been saying when she was crossing over every, all of the, you know, all that she can do as an actress in her elements. And it's like a return to like what she actually does very well as a performer and not like being essentially sidelined in a role that just asks her to be pretty, which is what a lot of that stretch was. Yeah, I agreed. So Volver is a huge success for her. And then two years, she gets an Oscar nomination for that in one of like, a hugely stacked best actress category in 2006, which is Mirren wins for the queen, but it's Streep for devil wears Prada. It's Kate Winslet for little children. It's Judy Dench in our favorite notes on a scandal. And then it's Penelope Cruz for Volver. Any one of the five of them would have been a great winner. As far as I'm concerned. That's a great lineup. I mean, the winner is easily my least favorite performance. I, I think the winner is probably my least favorite too, but I think people, I think people crap on Helen Mirren in the Queen in our little Oscar nerd circles a little too easily. I think she's very good in that movie. She's she, always, I mean, like a Helen Mirren. I I like Helen Mirren, but yeah, I so don't then know. Two years later, she's in the Woody Allen movie Vicky Cristina Barcelona, and the less said about Woody Allen, the better. But she his, rips the roof off that movie. She's so good and she's so funny. Great. Not playing funny yes and she's she's great playing off of javier bardem in that movie she's great playing off of scarlett johansson in that movie she's like she's a wild a wild card a a firecracker in that movie Mm -hmm. and it's everything about that is fantastic and then so i think from there then i think filmmakers know a little bit more about what to do with her and the movies become not all great she's still in like She's in Broken Embraces, which is great. She's in Nine, which is, um, I think, not she very is great. <laughs> She's fine in it. She's not the problem with Nine, but I also don't think she was good enough to get an Oscar nomination. And that was one of those, no. like, reputation alone Oscar nominations. She's in, like, The Counselor, speaking of Cormac McCarthy. She's in The Counselor. And movies that listeners keep asking us to do. <laughs> we should at one point, because that's a disaster and it's kind of fun to talk about. But I don't think she's all that impressive in it. But then, you know, she's better in other things. She's good in... Um, I'm trying to think of what recently... She's been good in Everybody Knows, the uh, Oscar for Hadi movie. She's Yeah, she's the best thing about that movie. It's on Netflix right now, and it's it's definitely watchable for her performance if the movie never really, like, moves the dial, unfortunately. Yeah. But she's really good in it. She was great in American Crime Story as Donatella Versace. I think, you know, hugely, hugely watchable, really playing on her star persona. But that's how she's you She's got an Asayas movie coming this year. It's at least at this time playing Venice. That which is, I'm very excited for. What's that one called? It's called the Wasp Network. Right. Uh, we love Olivier Assayas. Yes. Penelope Cruz is in that movie. Edgar Ramirez, speaking of American Crime Story, is also in that movie. Gael Garcia Bernal is in that movie. Very much looking forward to that one, for sure. Excited for it. All right. We should do our IMDb game because we are running long. 
We are. All right, explain what the IMDb game is. IMDb game. We challenge each other uh, at the end of every episode to name the top four titles in a selected actor or actress's uh, IMDb page uh, listed as they're known for. We will say if there is voiceover or um, television work in the known for, and uh, we get two wrong guesses, and then if we don't get all of the right answers we get the years of the remaining titles as a hint if we don't get it from there it's just kind of a free-for-all of hints that is the imdb game all right would you like to guess first or give first um i will give first okay all right so we talked uh just now about penelope cruz um and one of the reasons that she was not treated so fairly here by american audiences was her relationship with one tom cruise oh boy tom cruise giving you tom cruise all right i'm guessing that you're you wouldn't be giving this to me if it was like all mission impossibles so i'm gonna guess can you tell me if it's a mission impossible and then i will try and guess which one uh i don't know if i want to are there two mission impossibles no, technically, no. There are not two Mission Impossible. Are there three Mission Impossible? I will just, what was that? Are there three Mission Impossible? I will just say it. There are zero missions impossible. Well, that's what I was asking. Okay, so that's a wrong. So that's a strike. Okay, I will count that as a strike. Then. Yeah, you yes. should. Okay. No right. missions impossible. That's surprising, considering they're the only movies his that make money anymore. Okay. Well, in that case. I imagine we're going to get, like, meat and potatoes, Tom Cruise, like A Few Good Men? No. Okay. No. So, okay, I will give you your years. Yes, please. Uh, you have got 1986. Wow. 1996, 2002, and 2003. All right. 2002's got to be Minority Report. Minority Report. What was the year between 86 96, you said, right? Yes. 96 is Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. 86 is Risky Business. Nope. Top Gun. Top Gun. Right. We are waiting on 2003. Ugh, I hate Top Gun. I hate that we're getting a new Top Gun. I can't wait for everybody to shut the fuck up about Top Gun, is what I will say. Are people really talking about Top Gun? The Top Gun trailer. The day the trailer came out. The same day as the Cats trailer, and there are people who fully have no idea that there is a new Top Gun trailer out there. You are blinkered by your gay ass circles, I will say. People were definitely talking about Top Gun. People were talking about it until the Cats trailer happened, and now nobody is. <laughs> then all dialogue stopped. Um, I love Glenn Powell. I will look at photos of Glenn Powell and Top Gun, but I do not need another Top Gun, is what I will say. All right, so 20, 2003. All right. He makes Minority Report. Oh, God, is it The Last Samurai? It's The Last Samurai. That's gross. That's super gross. (laughs) That's like the worst answer in here. But like part of the reason why when I was flipping through, I picked Tom Cruise is that like it feels like it's transcended the algorithm in a certain way. Right. You know, like you would think it would be a lot of Mission Impossible on there, but no. That's silly. Okay. Well, Tom Cruise, there's a lot to choose from, I will say. That is the nice thing about a Tom Cruise game. All right. I am going to speaking of Penelope Cruz, which we just were. I am going to give you her husband, right? They're married. 
Yes. Her husband, Javier Bardem, who has co-starred with her a bunch. He's great. He's wonderful. He is very sexy. He is. Um, uh, Skyfall? Correct. Okay, can we can I bitch for two seconds about how like all of the the uh, all of the Oscar narrative around Skyfall drove me insane at the time, and it still drives me insane. He's fine in Skyfall. I think it should um, have been a Best Picture nominee. <laughs> okay, well, I really okay. like Skyfall. I am not a Bond person. I, I like Skyfall, Skyfall, but like people who like will like punch you out over Skyfall. It it calm down. Um, I will say uh, I have experienced more Skyfall backlash than I have experienced Skyfall cheerleading in my really? in my travels. Yes. In your, tra- in your travels to Great Britain. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because um, there are all those people being like, that's not really James Bond. Make James Bond fun again. Sam Mendes is too into backstories and narratives. And I felt that blah, way blah, blah. more with Spectre. Well, Spectre, Spectre, that is true about Spectre. Garbage. Spectre's not good. Spectre's bad. Skyfall is Skyfall the good version bother. of what Sam Mendes has brought to that franchise. Interesting. People are also generally too down on Sam Mendes, is what I also say. But that's a different discussion. Revolutionary. Great. Um, uh, no Country for Old Men. Yep. Um, I just got to throw this out there because they tend to show up. Um, whatever the Pirates of the Caribbean movie he was in. No, he's not. And it's funny because oh I get I had my roommate do Penelope Cruz for the IMDb game last night as I was and looking hers for definitely one. Is there. And hers is is one of them. Yep. Yeah. No, it's not it's not his. It's his was Dead Men Tell No Tales, and that is not It's funny that they both did That's Pirates. The most recent one and it's forgotten, right? Yeah. Okay. Um We also hmm. looked up the budget for her Pirates of the Caribbean movie on Stranger Tides, and I literally it's was insane. like, it's that can't be right. million dollars. It's like $350 million. Yeah. What the crazy. fuck in <laughs> the world? It's crazy. It's because it's Rob Marshall and they will, they, Disney will throw money at Rob Marshall. It's also they partially, it's also that like I stopped paying attention to movie budgets a long time ago and that when I did, $100 million was still a lot for a movie. Like yeah. that was still a huge budget. And so I, now I look at movie budgets at like $350 million and I'm like, what in the world is going on? You wonder if it's more of like the true amount that they spend on it. Like, is Maybe. the fact that it's three hundred and fifty million because they gave Johnny Depp like fifty million dollars to be in that movie? Well, but also it's the fact that like when you're talking about worldwide box office and a billion dollars is the mark now, that right. what's three hundred and fifty million dollars when you want when you're looking to make a billion? Yeah. Okay. Back to Javier Bardem. Yeah. There's maybe not a lot of options. He's now in more movies thinking. than you think, is what I will say. Beautiful? His other Oscar nomination? Beautiful, no. Okay. What about his other Oscar nomination, Before Night Falls? Uh, no, and that's actually that's multiple strikes, so I'm going to give you years. It is neither Before Night Falls or Beautiful. So okay. your years are 2004 and 2008. 2008 has to be Vicky Cristina Barcelona. It is. 2004 so that's before his oscar win Mm -hmm. after his oscar nomination Mm -hmm. he has that role in collateral it's got to be collateral it's not it's the other 2004 movie that he made Mm -hmm. 
don't know if I remember what it is. It's an Oscar uh, winner. It's an Oscar winner. Yeah. Above the line or below the line? Below the line. Oh, it also had a nomination below the line. Interesting. Okay. Only one other nomination. Yeah, two nominations total. It won one. When I say below the line, though, don't Yeah, think... your hesitation is curious to me. Well, it is technically, if we're counting above the line as screenplay or acting or directing or picture, it is not among those. But it's not a tech nomination either. So it's a foreign language winner? Yes. Is it the... the, the hmm. It's like one of those vague titles that could mean anything. Yes. Um, it's a metaphorical title for sure. The... Oh, The Sea Inside. The Sea Inside. Alejandro Amenabar's The Sea Inside. Yeah. Mar Adentro, or whatever. He probably was close to a nomination for that, right? I remember him getting a lot of talk. Yes. Actually, yeah. And it was a makeup nominee, right? There were a lot of precursors for that. Yeah, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Picture in a Drama. He was nominated. Oh, the movie was nominated for an AARP Go- Movies for Grownups Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Hey, he got a Gotta Broadcast get- Film Critics nomination for Best Actor. Yeah, he was definitely in the discussion that year. Probably right. got aced out by Don Cheadle for Hotel Rwanda. So there, huge, huge, huge sweep of the Goya Awards that year. Holy crap! Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. It won fourteen Goya Awards out of fifteen nominations, Oy, including best lot. film. It did not win best production design. It is the Titanic of the Goya Awards. The Sea Inside, and I have seen it and don't remember very much about it. I don't remember if I have seen it. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Put that on our list. Yeah. All, all right. right. Anything about all the pretty horses, Joseph? Nah, I think we covered it. It's famously troubled production. It is a not to, of itself. It is not to, as one would say, beat a dead horse. Boo! 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 One light, and on now from... we need to end this podcast so that I can go and perform a citizen's arrest. <laughs> on Chris File for that pun. That is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, this week that the episode's airing, you can probably find me at some local AMC, um, parking it and living inside whatever theater is playing the kitchen, (laughs) but you can also find me online at, um, uh, the film experience. I write regularly. I'm also on Twitter at Chris V file. That's F E I L follow me on letterbox under the same name. Yeah. Yeah, I am also on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on Apple Podcasts. So stitch up that sexy knife wound on your face and get to writing us a rave, won't you? That's a thing I didn't mention. 
that I thought I would mention was that Matt he Damon has a gets sexy a cut. wound that is like very like you can the makeup's bad. It's a very superficial wound on his face, but it's like the classic knife wound where it's just like nope, don't hurt him, just only that it'll make him sexier, and it's just like the you know the. The slightest flesh wound. It's wonderful. Once again, a reminder that we'll be doing a mailbag episode soon. So send us your questions to at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz on Twitter or email us. We do love an email. Do that if you can at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com. No space is necessary. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. I'm going to go look at them filming West Side Story. And I'm going to say nay. Nay.